Hi, you're listening to Mindful Mutterings Goes Travelling, the mindfulness-based travel podcast for all of us adventurers who love to go travelling, love to live in the present moment and want to make life a more enriching experience. Thanks for listening. Hi, so thanks for joining me on this episode of Mindful Mutterings Goes Travelling from Egypt and I'm recording this on the balcony so you can hear the noise that goes on all day and all night. It's not a problem, doesn't keep you awake, but it's just the city never sleeps. It's just crazy. Okay, so we got we got to Egypt late uh, on our first night and went through customs quite quickly, got through the visas, um, and then we had to meet our representative. We had a bit of an issue with people wandering off around the airport, so we didn't actually get to our hotel until really late at night. But we got up the next morning and we were raring to go. And our first trip was off to the Great Pyramid at Giza. Um, So we were told that the reason the Pyramids of Giza lie in the west of the area is because the sun rises in the east, which is what they represent life and the sun god and all things positive. And because the sun sets in the west, that is nicely representing death and therefore that's where the Great Pyramids were um, built. So the pyramid is in old Egypt, or the old kingdom, and it's thought to be about 5,000 years old. Uh, and honestly, you, you see it in films, you see it in magazines, you know in your head, you know intellectually how big it is and how imposing it is. But it's not until you're standing next to it that you realise how tiny you are and how huge it is. So it's really quite awe-inspiring. Um, and, so, and it's thought to be about 5,000 years old made from 2,300,000 blocks which had to be transported from a quarry in Aswan and it was made by King uh, Cheops and he was he built it to 146 meters tall but in an earthquake oh, many years ago um, they lost the top nine meters including the very pinnacle of it where the diamond was supposed to and the gold was supposed to be um, and so it lost all its white limestone as well. So although it's still very impressive, it doesn't have that beautiful white sheen to it. Um, it's got two entrances to it. Um, and you can go in, you can crawl, crawl <laughs> into the pyramid, but apparently everything's been stripped now. There's no decoration, there's nothing in there to see. It's just a very small hole that you can crawl into the middle and then it's a hollow pyramid. Um, but we couldn't do it because anybody with a back injury, and I have a back injury, um, it was recommended not to do, so we weren't actually allowed to get in. But the, what is really interesting is that the king, while he was building his tomb, kept changing his mind. And when it was half built, um, he changed his mind and decided he didn't really want to be buried in a tomb underneath the pyramid, he wanted to be buried inside it. And so he used one of the chambers that had been dug down to dig up. So he broke through that, dug up, and created two uh, tomb rooms inside his pyramid because he wanted a place for his mother to be buried as well. Um, and then his son built the second of the great the three pyramids. So his son, King Kedron, had killed his brother so that he could become king, and he built his pyramid next to his dad's one, which is 136 metres tall. And then the third pyramid uh, was only 69 metres tall because the king that built that, he wasn't king for very long, so he didn't have, didn't have that long to build it. So then, so you've got three pyramids at Giza, and then you've got three smaller ones, which are the pyramids for the queens and sisters. Uh, 
and their daughters. But it's all it's all very incestuous um, Egypt, Egypt, Egyptian even history, because the kings had to marry people of royal blood, and the only people of royal blood were his sisters or his cousins. And so quite often the king would marry his sister and have children with them. Um, so that takes a little bit of getting your head around. So we walked, we got to walk around the Great Pyramid, which is incredible. There's camels everywhere. It's very busy. There's lots of people trying to sell you stuff. But you cannot detract from the beauty and majesty of this incredible building. And you really, you know, I think, well, it's just awe-inspiring. How the hell did they manage to build that? But so very grateful that we got to see one of the last remaining wonders of the ancient world. From there we went on to the Temple of Mummification. And that was built by the same king as the second temple, so King Kedron. Um, and he also built the Sphinx, which I'll talk about later. So the whole process of mummification apparently takes 40 to 70 days. <clears throat> and in this temple, they had 23 holes built into the ground because Egyptians believe that they have 26 organs, one being the skin, one being the arms, and one being the legs. So they don't count those because obviously they go with the body. But for everything else, they have a hole that represents it. So the first thing they do is they take out, they put a sort of small slit in the right-hand side of the stomach, and they take out the lungs, the kidneys, the stomach, and the intestines, and they put those in the Coptic jars. Um, and the jars represent the four goddesses that protect you and take you to the underworld. The heart is then taken out and mummified and then returned back to the body because when you get to the afterlife and you meet Anubis, the heart is weighed. On one side there's a feather, on one side of the scale there's a feather, and on the other side there's your heart. And if your heart is lighter than the feather, it means you've lived a good life and you're worthy and you can carry on to the underworld. And if your heart is heavier than the feather, then you'll be punished by the goddess. So that's, that's where all that comes from. Um, and what they did is they took out the eyes, because they don't believe the eyes are an organ, they're just water. So they take the eyes out and they replace them with crystals, apparently. And then, gross as may, may sound, they stick a hook up the nose and they pull the brains out, so that's not there. And then the body itself is then wrapped in, um, or bathed in essential oils, and wrapped in linen. And then that is then transported and it goes inside a coffin, which goes inside a sarcophagus, which then goes inside a tomb. Which is absolutely fascinating that they went to all this effort to preserve the bodies. And they often preserve the bodies of the animals as well. So it's just crazy. From there we went to see the Sphinx. Uh, and the Sphinx is a Greek, Roman, uh, a Greek and Roman word. And it literally means the melding of animal and human. So it's Amazingly, it's carved from one block of stone, 70 metres long, it's 20 metres high, and during the French invasion, um, an Arab leader called El Qasim destroyed the nose because he believed that the Sphinx represented paganism and he wasn't going to have that. And that's widely attributed that the French actually destroyed the Sphinx, but apparently this is not so. We were told that this has been completely disproven, and it was in fact this Arab leader. And it is amazing, and you, get, you can get really close to the Sphinx, it is quite incredible. And where you see the Sphinx, you can, if you look to the left, you can see the three great pyramids um, behind it. And it's just, it's just madness, because not far from there is a town, it's the old Cairo. And it just seems crazy that they were allowed to build a town that close to something so historic and magnificent. But it, it really is the most incredible thing. 
and we went on a, a camel ride. We got a camel ride from the, where the pyramids, like not far from the pyramids, and they take you along the plains so you, you can see all six pyramids. So you get the three great pyramids, well, the great pyramid and the two next to it, and you get to see the pyramids for their wives. It's just such an amazing sight. And these pyramids all make out Orion's belt. What if you look at Orion's belt in the sky? The pyramids mark out the constellation on the ground. No one knows why, but it's all very mysterious and very interesting. From there, we went to a papyrus factory where we saw how it's, or like an artisan area, but we saw how it was all made. So they take the papyrus plant and they strip it, and they, what's left in the middle is like a white pith kind of thing in a triangle shape. They roll that out and then they soak it for a week, and then they weave the soaked pieces of uh, papyrus together, put it into a press, and after a week of leaving it in the press, that becomes paper, which is waterproof and lasts well, for thousands and thousands of years. And then they write or they paint on it. But it was how they wanted to share their, well, they wanted to share their secrets with their generations coming up. And so uh, that's how papyrus was invented. But it's also used for lots of other stuff. It's used to make rugs, it's used for the essential oils from it. It's kind of like a go-to produce of this country. So it was all very exciting. We then came back to our hotel and it's all a little bit overwhelming. It's, you know, kind of, you have all this history around you, 5,000 years of history. It makes you feel kind of, not insignificant, but you kind of realize how vast the timeline is. And our hotel, our balcony looks over the Nile, so we can see the Nile flowing in front of us. And that that kind of puts you in your place as well, because something that's got so much history is just literally flowing past you as you, you know, relax on the balcony. Had a lovely meal last night, that was all very interesting. Lots of uh, Egyptian food is not gluten-free, so I'm having to stay with quite safe food while we're here. But that's okay, it's all about the experience of being here. And the chef did cook me something special, so that was very lovely. And I could eat my fill of hummus here, so that's not a bad thing. Um, the next day we got up and we were taken off to the Egyptian Museum. And that, that is, again, overwhelming. It's also incredibly hot in there. There's no air conditioning. There are so, so many people. And they are very security conscious here. You get scanned and your bags get scanned every time you go into a hotel every time you go into a public building. Um, they are very security conscious for obvious reasons. So you, you come through into the Egyptian Museum and the first thing you're greeted with is the statues of King Ramesses, which is just incredible. And uh, although the Rosetta Stone now resides in the British Museum, there is a replica of the Rosetta Stone. Um, which obviously is how they first discovered language. It had the four languages on it, the Coptic, the Egyptian, the hieroglyphs. Um, and it was, it's really very interesting to see how they built language up around that. Um, and King Ramesses, who, whose statues you're greeted with as soon as you come in, he uh, was King Ramesses II. He ruled for 67 years, had 35 wives and 55 children, and all members who are royal... Uh, who are royal or priests have to be hairless so here he shaved every part of his body and then he wore these spectacular like, headdresses and the reason for that was because you were meeting the gods and so you had to be presentable um, 
and it's just incredible to see that the way that they lived and also it's very interesting because how did he manage to have 35 wives if all the people that he married have to be of royal blood interesting questions um, but anyway on the second floor is the King, King Tutankhamun exhibition um, and obviously King Tutankhamun's tomb uh, was discovered by Howard Carter in 1922 uh, at the Valley of the Kings in Luxor and he was the only king not to have his tomb robbed that's why there's so much of his stuff so at nine years old he became um, the king that's why he's known as the child king uh, he got married at 18 and had two disabled daughters who have sadly died um, and when they examined his mummy uh, it looked like he, well, he has got a crack in his skull so they assumed that he'd been murdered but, or he'd had a terrible accident but previously they or just lately they've done a DNA scan and what they actually know now is that he died of malaria. Um, and when we see the mask of Tutankhamun, the one that's always associated with him, uh, that is made of 11 pounds of gold. And as you walk around, obviously you see his sarcophagus, you see his little tiny throne. Um, you see also four smaller versions of the sarcophagus. And they're his Coptic jars, they're where he's... Um, Heart, no, it's heart. Sorry, his lungs, kidneys, small intestines, and stomach were kept, um, and they're beautifully, beautifully decorated. Everything associated with him is absolutely stunning to look at. Um, from there, you move forward and you see Queen Hatshepsut's um, exhibition. Now she's she's really quite amazing. So she killed her husband and her brothers and changed her name from, or changed her pronoun from she to he and disguised herself as a man. And because she was such a strong and powerful queen, she actually earned the right to be buried at the Valley of the Kings. Um, and she was thought originally to be killed by her son, but again, they've done DNA sampling and actually it, found, it turns out that she died of breast cancer. So, um, yeah. A nasty way to go, but she was apparently a very powerful queen. Then we went round and we uh, continued on our way. And we there's lots of stuff with hieroglyphs on at normally at well actually. And the guide was telling us how you read hieroglyphs. Not that I have a clue in being able to work out the symbols, but she was showing it's the, there's always a bird in a in a row of hieroglyphs, and whichever word the, whichever way the bird is facing. That is the way you read it. So if the birds are looking down, that's the way you read those symbols. If the birds are looking up, you read those symbols. If the birds are looking to the right, obviously you read from uh, left to right. And if he's looking the other way, you read from right to left. So if you ever face your hieroglyphs, you now know what to do. Then you come to a statue of King Cheops, who obviously made the Great Pyramid. Uh, and it is the smallest statue in Egypt, but it's also the largest ivory statue. It's a mere seven inches tall. Um, and the guy that sculpted it was very scared because King had said he didn't want a sculpture made of him. He wanted the pyramid. Um, so, but the sculptor wanted to make a sculpture of him. So he made this little tiny ivory pyramid and it was displayed like m absolutely miles. I think it was 500 kilometers away from where the king would be. Um, and then you, you, as you walk around the museum, you come across these... Um, statues or sculptures of dwarfs and apparently dwarfs um, and obviously you wouldn't use that term now but they, that's the term they use here were very well respected uh, in history and they were often given roles of great power and would often run the temples for the king um, 
and the men were always depicted as having a, a brown colour because they would be working outside and they would be overseeing what was going on. And because the women generally stayed inside and were running the home, they're always depicted as being very pale skinned or white. Um, and then we learned, and I didn't know this, that men and women wore makeup not for decoration, but to protect them from the sun. Um, so that's really interesting. That's why they wear the thick eyeliner, it protects their eyes. Uh, all the makeup was to keep their skin protected from the incredible heat of the sun that you get here. And one last thing that we learned is when you look at the statues of the kings, they've often got two different types of beard. You've often got the, like the flat triangle one or you've got the curved one. And the king must always have the flat straight one and the gods are always represented with the curved ones. Um, so now you know, when you're looking at the statues, now you know how to work out who is a god and who was a king. So that was all like really overwhelming to be fair. There's so much to look at. They've got over 200,000 exhibits there. In fact, they're having to build a huge, huge complex near the pyramids for all the new discoveries and all the stuff they've got stored away because there's so much history here and so many artefacts. Um, but even just wandering around the Egyptian, or the, the Egyptian museum there, it's just overwhelming. There's just rooms and rooms of mummies and mummified animals and artefacts and statues and huge sculptures and uh, tablets of writing and doorways. It's just absolutely amazing and so much to take in. So we did all that and then we came back um, had a really quick lunch and then we decided we wanted to get a feel of what Cairo was actually like because while we've been to see some amazing things hadn't actually got to spend much time in the, the city itself so we jumped in an Uber uh, and went off to the, the huge bazaar that is here it's the biggest one in Africa and we just wandered around it's very like the Souks of Morocco but on a much grander scale and you walk around and there is just stall after stall selling spices and teas and clothes and souvenirs and jewellery and yes just amazing sight and so so many people and it's so busy um, so we walked around there stopped for a lovely little mint tea and you are hassled the whole time by um, people trying to sell you stuff constantly bringing up stuff or begging but I mean that's quite normal in lots of places now um, but they're not aggressive with it, they just come up, they want you to buy it, you ask them to leave and off they go. So after a very refreshing mint tea, we carried on around the sooks for a bit, jumped in a cab and came back and had a lovely swim to cool down because it was very warm. And then we had an early dinner because we were up at three o'clock the next morning to catch our flight to Aswan to begin our now our cruise, which was very exciting, I'm very excited for that. So... I hope you'll join me for the Nile Cruise Adventure coming next. Bye, take care. Hi, thanks for joining me. So the noise that you can hear in the background is the sound of our cruise liner cutting through the Nile River. The views are just amazing, but let me backtrack. So uh, we had a very early start, uh, four o'clock we had to get up so that we could go to catch our um, internal flight to Aswan. Um, that was an experience. Oh my God, there was nothing moving fast. Women could have to queue in the same line as women because they only had one female there and every single one of us was patted down and searched. That took forever. And that happened three times before we actually got to where we could board the plane. 
he boarded the plane with five minutes to spare and that it took off straight away but hour and a half later we were in Aswan we'd left Cairo behind and we were ready for our next adventure um, got to the airport things don't move fast here it took a long time to get the baggage to get through customs to get all that and we're told that we're being whisked straight away while it's not too crowded uh, to see the new dam and the high dam so the dam was built by the British um, and it had to be raised twice because despite the fact that they built this dam it kept flooding the temple of Philae and the damage that was being caused was huge and in creating the dam or in building the dam they created the Nassau Lake which is the longest artificial lake in the world and it runs through Egypt and Sudan and somehow they managed to trap all the crocodiles there so that's where you will find hundreds and hundreds of crocodiles and lots and lots of fish um, but the higher dam didn't stop the flooding um, and it kept happening so eventually they decided that to preserve the temple they were going to have to move it um, and that's what they did it, between 1977 and 1981 at a cost of 15 million dollars they took the temple apart and reconstructed it somewhere else but I'll get to that later because the temple is now safe and we revisit it later in the day so the new high dam was funded and built by the Russians between 1960 and 1971 because Egypt just didn't have the money or the resources and so they got the funding from Russia it's 40 uh, metres wide, or maybe 40 miles wide, I think it's 40 miles wide, um, and it did stop the flooding, and it now provides enough water for oil of Egypt so that they can grow their crops. It also provides 10% of the electricity for Egypt. However, on the downside, it means they don't have any silt to fertilise the um, banks of the Nile, which means that for them to have any kind of vegetation or plantation there, they're having to use fertilisers, which is not so good. The other problem is, because the crocodiles are now in a um, contained area, although it's a huge contained area, um, they're eating all the fish. And that's having a, a knock-on problem for the locals, who obviously depend on the water for their livelihood. Um, but what we did learn while we were travelling around is that the people who live in Aswan, um, or the original people that lived here, were called the Nubians. And they are Egyptian, but they have their own customs and cultures. They speak Arabic and Nubian, which it, and apparently Nubian is a spoken language only. It's not um, ever written down. So, and that also means that a lot of the Egyptians can't understand what they're saying, so it keeps the culture even more separate. Um, and Previously, Nubians were all Christians, but have now all converted to Muslims, or to Islam. Um, and they live in these amazing mud brick houses, and each house, it's like a little dome, and then each house has five little domes, five or six domes coming off it. And that's because they expect to have five children. You know, that apparently is quite normal. And the reason they have these five little domes is that when each of those children marry, they will then bring up their families in the domes and they keep the family and the culture very close to themselves and to each other. So Aswan itself, beautiful old city, it has around 2,300,000 people plus hundreds of separate Nubian villages. It's the biggest market for spices in Egypt. Um, and nowhere will you find a price. Everything is to be haggled for. And some of the starting prices are just outrageous. I mean, it becomes a game after a while. And they're following you and they're shouting after you as you're walking away because you're not going to pay whatever extortionate amount it is. 
and then eventually it comes down to something reasonable and both of you are happy with what you've got. Aswan apparently is the, also the only city in the country to have black and pink granite. Um, and it, they're very, very proud of their culture and their heritage. And it is beautiful. I mean, there are palm trees and obviously you've got the, all this water running through and it's just, it's exactly what you imagine. Sand dunes, yeah, absolutely beautiful. So from there we went um, to the Temple of Philae itself, which is, so we get on a motorboat, which is just fantastic. We get on this little motorboat on the Nile, uh, putter along, absolutely brilliant. Little boy on there selling bits and pieces. Um, and we learn about the Temple of Philae, which apparently is dedicated to Isis. Um, and obviously she's, this is the goddess Isis they're talking about. Unfortunately, when the Christians occupied Egypt, they found the temple and um, in their eyes, obviously, Isis was a pagan god. Um, so they defaced the noses on all the walls of the temple. Um, and as I said earlier, due to its repeated flooding, it was dismantled and moved to a different island where it was reassembled. Um, and the, it's just mind-blowing. The, the carvings are fantastic. Everywhere you look, there's hieroglyphs. They all depict a story. We were shown how to read the hieroglyphs. And you think you're standing in front of something that's five thousand years old in 44 degree heat with a sun beating down on you and our guide is amazing he just brings these stories to life of how life would be and he was explaining that although Isis was married to Horus I think he said they only saw each other once a year and, and she would travel on by boat to go and see him and that would be when they spent their time together the rest of the time they were kept separate he told us all about the offerings that were offered up to the gods um, how the people respected and worshipped them. It's just, you, there's just so much history here and you're, you're constantly reminded of how incredibly resourceful and clever these people were 5,000 years ago. You know, like, it's just, it's so hard to comprehend that you're now standing in front of all the things that you've seen since you were children. You know, and these amazing temples that are everywhere. Um, and yeah, just an incredible experience. So we had an opportunity to just walk around and soak it up and yeah, just the most incredible experience. So from that, we get back on our boat and we went back to, um, across, <laughs> across the water with all these other boats and you can see the Felukias in the distance. These are these boats, these beautiful big sails. Um, and it was just the most incredible way to start our uh, Nile cruise and Aswan journey. So then we were taken um, from there to our boat. And we, to board the boat, you have to walk through four others because they stack them kind of three or four deep. So you walk through all these boats, you get to ours. Oh, not disappointed. Each cabin has got a panoramic window. So you've got a view. That's why you can hear the Nile now. I've got the door open and the, or the window open. And so you're there and you, you can hear the water. The sun is glistening off the river and the the view is just stunning. It's just a wall of green. Every shade of green you can imagine, tall palm trees, short shrubs in front of it, uh, little birds flying in and out of it, fishermen on the river. It's, it's just fantastic. I just can't believe we're here. It's amazing. And yeah, the cabin itself is beautiful, very luxurious, huge bed, huge. And armchairs so that you can sit and take in the view maybe a little glass of wine later. 
and, and the, the boat itself is absolutely beautiful marble floors beautiful lighting anyway so after a very delicious lunch um we were taken back out on the river but this time we got to ride in a felucca and that was again incredible so they have to zigzag because obviously they're wind powered they have to tack with the wind so you do have this lovely gentle journey as we zigzagged across the Nile River towards Kitchener's Island um, and Kitchener's Island um, it is just fantastic so he came Lord Kitchener came over in um, a military expedition so he was on an expedition from Egypt to Sudanland in 1898 and he found this island um, and he decided he wanted to plant it all up so he brought flowers and trees and he just created this beautiful oasis in the middle of the Nile and um, so we had lovely opportunities to walk around there as with everywhere in Egypt there are stalls popping up and people trying to sell their wares and people just trying to get money it's a very very poor country and there's like an underlying desperation in people trying to make ends meet and so you know you find yourself not bartering quite so much or people are so resourceful there was two little boys and they were paddling on paddle boards no idea where they got them from but they would come up to the boat and they would sing and then you know how can you not give them money it's just the level of poverty is is stark here um, and so that was lovely so we had to wander around it's all shaded it's absolutely beautiful um, there's a lotus flower there's this hibiscus uh, and it's just this just this wash of green and we came across a tree called the uh, Christ's Thorns, which it looks like it might have been the stuff that his um, crown was made of. Yeah, just an incredible sight. Like I said, there's just so much history here. And then, of course, we returned on our felucca and we had our gentle tacking motion back towards our boat. From there, we were then taken to see the unfinished obelisk. So it's not really clear I don't think they really know how these things were made because there's been no tools found and um, they've got these huge carvings out of stone they're carved in one piece and the reason the um, unfinished obelisk is so famous is because it's just so huge I mean it's 42 meters high and it's literally been carved out of the quarry because uh, most of the stone comes from Aswan so they've carved this single piece out and normally what happens is it has all the prayers written on it um, and the reason they had obelisks is they would be placed in front of temples and they, the top would be pyramid shaped, it would often be covered in gold and all four sides would be carved with prayers to Ra, the sun god um, and most of them, or a lot of them, have been stolen and scattered all around Europe I mean, Plaster Concord has one, Italy's got them, we've got Cleopatra's Needle um, you know, so they're, they're scattered far and wide. Um, and no one really knows how they were made or how they were transported because these are huge, incredibly heavy hunks of, of stone. Um, and there's lots of theories, but none of them really hold weight. So the reason this obelisk is unfinished is because a large crack was noticed running all the way through it and obviously there's no way they can repair it. And even if they could repair it, how stable would it be once this obelisk is lifted and stood upright? So they had to abandon it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And like I said, they never found any tools. So it's really unclear how they managed to firstly carve these huge stones out of the quarry 
and then how they managed to get them to move to wherever it was they wanted and often very long distances and then when they got them there how they managed to get them to stand upright so it really is a feat of incredible engineering um yeah and just like i said the ingenuity and the talent and the skill of these people five thousand years before and it is incredible the scale of everything everything is huge everything Every picture you see is depicted with these amazing headdresses and images of the sun god and images of moon deities and gods with crocodile heads and gods with uh, just different animals as their headpieces and so much that we still don't know about them and so much that we do know that is just fantastical and incredible. Egypt is an amazing country to visit and I'm so excited to see how the rest of our journey pans out. So for the, after we returned back to the ship, we were hoping for a quick swim, but by now it was just too late. So we got showered and changed, ready for dinner, went down, and then there was a, uh, a music show billed for the evening, so we were quite excited to see what that was. Actually, it was just a disco. So after a little bit of a dance, a couple of glasses and wine, we retired to our cabin to watch the world go by um, as we had another early start the next morning as we visited uh, Com Ombo. And the exciting thing that we're happening tonight is at 2.30 we've been told they'll be up anchor um, and we'll be on our way over there. So I hope you join us for the rest of my Nile adventure. Take care. Bye. Hi. So uh, we docked in Com Umbo this morning to the news that our planned excursion to Abu Simbel had actually taken place the day before due to an organisational issue could not be arranged during our stay in Egypt. To say we were gutted would be an understatement. Um, and after a few minutes of really negative thinking and metaphorical foot stamping in our heads and out loud to each other, really I had no choice but just to accept that it wasn't meant to be and to stay focused in the moment and enjoy what we were going to be experiencing. <clears throat> so moving on, uh, we started with a really early morning visit to Komombo Temple. So Kom Ombo means stack of gold, and it's the only temple in all of Egypt that is dedicated to two gods. So when it was found, half the temple was buried in sand, and it took 35 years to uncover the temple. Um, and when they did discover it, they found that it was surrounded by a mud wall. So the temple itself is dedicated to Sobek, who's the guy with the crocodile head, and he's not a very popular god, apparently. Um, mainly because the reason that he was worshipped or the temple was dedicated to him was because there was a crocodile in the Nile that were killing lots of priests. So to stop this, they decided to make him a god and worship him. But they didn't really want to, it was more a case of necessity. Well, actually it was to stop them getting eaten and it was done out of desperation. What they wanted to do was worship Horus instead. Um, and so they were appeasing um, Sobek but they were also worshipping Horus in the same temple and Sobek found out uh, and he got absolutely furious and he kicked everyone out of the town and previously before he'd kicked everybody out and had his little hissy fit um, they were bringing him uh, offerings every day of four cows so he was like spiritually uh, consuming four cows a day but because no one was left to bring him offerings he was now starving um, so he decided to resurrect the dead always a good move obviously hadn't seen the mummy movies uh, and he ordered them to grow food problem with that was the uh, newly risen dead didn't want to grow food or 
be under his control. So they spread sand and salt instead, and consequently, Com Ombo became the first isolated town. Horace, good guy, wanted to make amends, so he had a mirror image made of the temple. So right, like literally, this, the, same, the, the one temple is literally split down the middle, and one is a mirror image of the other. Uh, and whatever was depicted of him in hieroglyphics, he had exactly the same on the other side depicted with Sobek to show that there was no hard feelings. So, I mean, it's an amazing building and we saw it as the sun was rising and it doesn't matter how much I bang on about it, but the, the scale of the stuff here is, is just huge. The ingenuity and craftsmanship is like nothing you would have seen. If you think we were being invaded by the Vikings when all this was going on and they were writing hieroglyphics and building these incredible stone monuments to gods, it just kind of puts things in perspective but also it's just so beautiful here with palm trees and we're on the Nile and it's breathtakingly beautiful anyway back to the temple so lots of the walls have carvings of the offerings that were made to the gods they kept like a diary and it's all done in hieroglyphics and uh, our guide showed us how to read these hieroglyphics so we could see what the date was but they were so advanced in recording information that the way they write the date would include a number and a symbol for the day, another number and the symbol for the month, and then another image depicting the season. So, for example, you could tell that it was the third day of the second month of the planting season and that they had offered four cows to Horace or whatever it might be. Not only that, they had worked out that they needed to know how much water was in the Nile to make sure that there was enough water for everyone to do the irrigation, to plant food, for people to survive, because everyone's life is dependent on the Nile here. And so they created a Nilometer. <laughs> I swear to God, that's what it's called. Um, and so they had this incredibly deep well, with which is supposedly carved with a hammer and chisel, but I mean, when you look at it, you can't really reconcile that in your head. You can't see that that's actually possible with the, the finish and the depth and everything else that goes on. Anyway, yeah, excuse the shouting, they're moving the boat next to us. Um, anyway, the, so they have this huge well structure on one side and it was connected to the Nile River by this long, long stone corridor that went underneath the temple. And as the water level rose or fell, they would be able to measure it because there would be these steps down in the well and they could then look at where the water level was and they would know whether either they were in for a heavy flood season, in which case they could prepare and try and take care of things, or if they were going for a drought season, in which case I don't really know what they did, but they also knew they had to prepare and store food for that. Um, and it's just an incredible combination of ingenuity, problem solving and math skills. So that was just fantastic. And then on the same site is the Museum of Crocodiles because Sobek is depicted as a crocodile because obviously he was a crocodile that was swimming around and then became a god. Um, and so then the crocodiles had to become revered and they were then mummified and carvings and sculptures were made of them. And naturally, there's a museum full of mummified crocodiles and culture sculpt uh, crocodile sculptures and pretty much anything you can think of that can be made in the shape of a crocodile, it's in this museum but well worth a visit. I mean, it's just, this, just they did everything on such a huge amount, whether it was making um, offerings to their gods or building temples, everything is just done with so much love, care and attention. So then we went back to the hotel for breakfast, or the boat, sorry, we're back on the boat. Uh, and I've not actually been able to eat much Egyptian food as most of it contains gluten. 
but the food on the ship is excellent and plentiful and it seems to be mostly beef and fish, fish dishes with lots of sauces, koftas or fried potatoes, lots of rice. Anyway, food aside, uh, oh by the way, the wine here is really good as well and my husband says the beer is delicious so if you're coming, lager and wine, good choice. Um, anyway, we set sail, we watch the changing scenery uh, both from our room and the sun deck and it's amazing how varied the scenery is. I mean, it all has the backdrop of trees, like loads of different trees, banana trees, palm trees, some we couldn't identify. Um, but we passed a beach-like area, and we, we passed temples and tombs, agricultural land. We saw horses, water buffaloes, cows and camels. We saw people fishing or doing their washing. We saw jetties with rowboats and kids playing. Um, and just it's just the most beautiful way to travel. You're just sailing down the night, and you have to pinch yourself because the idea of sailing down the Nile is just amazing and we're doing it, so yeah, mind-blowing. Anyway, then we arrived in uh, Edfu, we went to the temple, um, and that apparently took 108 years to build, and it was built for Horace, he's a good guy that the other temple was also dedicated to. Um, and Horace apparently, or it was thought that his essence lived in the sanctuary and the only people allowed to go into the temple was the king or the high priest. And each day the high priest um, would wash and oil the statue and dress it and he would then place the offering of the four cows each day in front of the statue. And then there was a little consecration chamber which would hold teeny tiny jars of sacred water and the king and the high priest would wash themselves with the holy water before going into the sanctuary so that they were purified before their god. Um, and then it turns out, so the gods are all married obviously and they can only marry, well I don't know how they can they work it out, but once they're married they can only see their spouse for two weeks of a year and one is taken to the other by a special boat. I'm not quite sure how they actually physically made that work, but we'll go with it. So the high priest, the priests and the kings would take the boat uh, and usually it would be the wife that travelled to the, to the husband um, and they would sail from her temple to the temple of the king and the, they would be left together for two weeks to get up to who knows what. I mean, what would two people do left alone after not seeing each other for 50 weeks? Can't imagine. Anyway, the temple apparently was rebuilt by the Egyptians uh, in the Greek and Roman times because it was founded in 1860 and again more than half of it was buried in sand um, and so they they kind of uh, reconstructed it and repaired it and made it good so more than uh, every king apparently has five names written in what they call a cartouche that's a little kind of like uh, long oblong rounded oblong and they're all written down um, underneath every one of their statues and when they're telling the stories or the history of um, what happened. And the, it has, of the five names, the first is his coronation name, which is the most important apparently. And so all kings were called son of the sun god. So because Egyptians um, obviously worshipped Ra, he was their most important, most important god. And what happened was Egyptians then believed that the world was a giant ocean. And one day a mountain appeared which looked like a pyramid. And the sun god was inside, created of and by himself. And he was their only god for a hundred years. But he got so lonely, he created other gods, as only god can do. 
Um, and so that's how come we have all these different gods and goddesses that were created because um, he wanted company and he wanted other people to take responsibility for running the planet. Um, and everywhere you look on, on these temples and it just it's just incredible, the stories that they tell. I mean, obviously, I can't read hieroglyphics, but I can pick out now, since I've been here, I can now pick out dates and I can pick out the sun god and the moon god and, and, you, can, and you can work out which god it is because you can see his face, he's a crocodile or he's a bird or he's, you know, and we know which god that refers to. And so all of a sudden, all of this history that before was just talked about it now comes to life in these huge buildings and they're just they're just massive I mean the walls themselves of the temples some of them are like 100 meters tall and you have to think just how did they get up there firstly to write and secondly the complexity of the language and the detail that goes into their storytelling is just phenomenal absolutely absolutely love the history here so now I thought I'd tell you a little bit something about the Nile. So apparently the Nile is 1,532 metres long. The Ankh is a symbol of life and is 5,000 years older than the cross. There you go. So the Nile, to be on the Nile River, like literally it is a bringer of life here. And it runs through 11 countries and it runs, it's north running and it ends up in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and it's one, I think it's the longest river in the world. But their whole life comes off it. You can see where irrigation, pumps are, are uh, in place for people who are trying to farm they use it for um, their water supply their electricity supply it, I mean it literally is the giver of life here um, and that that has brought problems of itself but I'll leave that for another podcast um, episode so then we came back to the boat and we had a really lovely lazy afternoon it was just lovely we went up on the sun deck a uh, nice glass of wine, read my book, and you could just watch the world go by, and it's so quiet and peaceful here. Um, and like I say, the scenery is just stunning. And then at five o'clock, um, <laughs> it was tea time. So they were serving uh, tea and coffee and cake, sorry, English. Um, and then we went through the Esna Lock, and that that was quite cool as well. So we they bring these huge ships down. So this Esna Lock is, is I think it's 40 miles long, it's huge absolutely huge um, and obviously because it balances the water out you go through one lock they then shut that one open the next one water levels change and you then sail on through uh, so that was pretty cool to be there but what is mad is as you're going through the lock all these little guys in little fishermen boats are trying to sell you their towels and their sheets and everything and like health and safety be damned I mean it just doesn't exist um, and you're just thinking you're going to go onto the boat any minute now you're going to go onto the boat please move please move but anyway they were still there as we came out of the lock the other side um, and we sailed on through to Luxor and that will be a different story so I hope you'll join me for that and um, oh no I forgot before we actually after we did the um, the lock we then had an evening of belly dancing and a whirling dervish I don't know if you know what a whirling dervish is but it's this guy like in a huge skirt and uh, yeah so he was spinning that round and he was spinning drums and then he, he all his costume lit up and he was taking bits of his skirt off and spinning it around everyone else but this guy must have been spinning in the same direction for about 20 minutes I, I have no idea how much practice that takes and like really entertaining but I don't really know the history behind it and then he was closely followed by a belly dancer who I don't know, in her lack of wisdom, decided to get me, my husband and a couple of people up from our, 
our group and a load of Italian people up. Anyway, so we all ended up dancing with her in a very poor attempt to do a belly dance. Thank God, I don't think there's any video evidence, but um, if it does come to light, please be kind. Anyway, that was our, our day. So I hope you'll join me for the next lake of our Egyptian adventure. Take care. Bye. So uh, got up this morning after a leisurely breakfast, we made our way to the coach to go to Karnak and Luxor Temple. So um, Luxor is about a 20 minute drive from us and you're driving through so many different landscapes all the time. Obviously it all has the backdrop of the Nile. But as we're driving past here, you can see agricultural land where they're growing uh, sugar cane and bananas and um, something we couldn't we couldn't uh, identify but there's just they're burning the land to clear it so it's all ready to start the new crops and obviously they use the water from the Nile to, to water the place and then you see all the the housing and as I said before poverty is really evident here and you see lots of just like little one story mud brick houses and apparently that's the most common type of accommodation uh, as to build what we what we would call a house or a proper house is um, just too expensive here and um, so you're driving past that and there's lots of donkeys and horses and dogs everywhere be people selling stuff out of little um, like tents in front of their house and um, until you get to Luxor which is then such a, a change in um, perspective because it's this massive clean bright cosmopolitan looking uh, town that has got some beautiful structures and uh, very cool um, sculptures dotted around the town it's got big wide streets it's got you know museums it is a massive tourist center it's got the avenue of sphinx it just looks incredible um, and you drive through that into Karnak which is a smaller town and they think that's what the Karnak Temple was named after. Although there is also um, an idea that it might have been named after an Iranian prince when the um, Iranians occupied here. Um, but they do prefer the idea that it was named after the town. So we learned that the temples on the east bank of the Nile are only for the gods and goddesses, and the temples on the west bank are for the kings and queens. Um, and the main deity um, of the temple in Karnak is Amun-Ra, and he was a sun god, so he had a wife who has a temple of her own, and they both they had a son, and he also has a temple of their own. But also, there are loads of other temples in the complex for other gods and for offerings to be made. Um, and Amun-Ra became the most important god in Upper Egypt in 2000 BC. Um, and in 17, 000, uh, 1700 BC, Egypt had been occupied by the Hexus, which is a, a group of nationalities including the Palestines, or the Palestinians. Um, and then the then king, Atmos I, and his son, they were both very strong kings, and they kicked all of the Hexus out of Egypt and chose Amun-Ra as the war god. And so that meant that every king uh, so from then had to worship him ever since. And to show their blessing or their uh, respect, they had to build something at Karnak in his honour. This is why the Karnak temple complex is so big and took over 2,000 years to build. So we're told that the temple used to have 24 obelisks, uh, but most of them are now either destroyed or scattered. Um, and there are a couple there, and they are huge. The biggest one, um, I think, in all of Egypt is at this uh, temple complex. But one of the other 
uh, best known obelisks is actually Cleopatra's Needle in London and that came from the Karnak Temple. Um, as you walk through there's just so much to see, the hieroglyphics on the walls are in great condition, there's lots of colour, original colour still there. You have to pinch yourself that this is so old, I mean this is incredible history before you and it's been somehow it stood the test of time and then you go down to a sacred lake uh, and so this is filled from what they call the noun and it's the ocean apparently where all life was created so the priests would come here every day to purify themselves before going to worship before gods um, and, and then oh, I'm so sorry if this guy apparently in 1867 a French Egyptologist had decided to deal with the salt incrustation problem by using the flood water so he washed the whole temple and he blocked off the Nile water with some very clever engineering. Um, but when he reopened the gate to the Nile, the water rushed in so fast that it destroyed the two large pylons and nine of the ten pillars in the great forecourt. I mean, can you imagine standing there and just watching all of this history being washed away before your eyes? Uh, obviously, he was sacked um, and went home with his tail between his legs. But oh, so much history was lost. Um, but you just, and I, I just can't get across to you the scale of these buildings. And they're just, they're just absolutely huge. And there's beautiful big sculptures as you go around, and they're they're sitting. And oh, I have no idea how tall they are. Probably eighty or ninety meters tall. And just they're so imposing and so majestic. And just the scale of these places is just phenomenal. Um, but interestingly, the tombs of the kings have never been found there. So there is a mummified body in a tomb. Um, and when the reason they uh, do it like this is because they believe that the spirit um, has one part and the shadow has another. And they believe that the soul of the kings live in heaven and are returned to the mummified body each day. So that's why they put the offerings in there because it's part of the journey to the afterlife. And on the um, hieroglyphs, you'll see um, a symbol of a king bird with a human head um, and that represents the spirit and the shadow and they'll have uh, their cartouche for the king as well so if the the image of the person known as the double which is kind of like their shadow um, if it, that's defaced in any way it's said that the soul can't find the body and can't receive the offerings and so therefore doesn't doesn't go through well into the next stage of the afterlife or the division of the afterlife so then we learned that the um, this has nothing to do with the temple. That the Nile should be three meters higher than it is at the moment, but apparently uh, Ethiopia has built a dam which has caused the water in the, the Nile to fall, and they didn't have a particularly rainy season here. And as all life here comes from the Nile, like it, it is used for so many things. Uh, they're predicting that this will actually be very serious for Egypt. And apparently there is a treaty between all the countries that the Nile flows through to make sure that everyone, you know, continues to have enough water. But Ethiopia apparently has ignored this treaty despite 10 years of talks between Ethiopia and Egypt. Um, and it's not that they asked Ethiopia not to build the dam, they were happy for them to build the dam and to fill the lake, but they were asked to fill the lake slowly, not in one go, so that they could, you know, balance out the amount of water that was being taken from the Nile. Apparently that hasn't happened and that's caused a lot of bad feeling here. Um, so from there, from this amazing um, temple, which has got such a kind of serene feeling about it, considering, you know, that it's all about death, but it's actually a very beautiful, stunning place. We then went to Luxor Temple. 
So Luxor Temple was built for Ramesses II and inside the temple there's a mosque been built and it's the oldest mosque in Luxor, 825 years old. Um, and they have these uh, six pylons um, and they're all of Ramesses II and there's also pictures of Asians and African people because he wanted everyone to know that he was such a strong king and he ruled many countries. So then you walk through into this, so you've got these amazing figures outside to start off with and they're just, just again so imposing and, and all the same questions, how do they manage to carve them, how do they manage to move the stone from Aswan, you know it's just incredible. And then you go through like a, a long corridor which is beautifully decorated and opens up into different chambers and then you come to the great colonnade hall which has got 74 of these huge columns, um, all all incredibly decorated, all on such a huge scale. And when Alexander, the, the great ruled there, he removed some of the original columns and he replaced the columns in the temple um, with dedication to Amun-Ra from him. Um, so yeah, it's just, just incredible. And you go into all these rooms and we don't. I don't think they know yet all of the history about it, and that most of it's an educated guess because they are translating it from the Rosetta Stone through one language into another, um, and so some of it, like I say, is educated. Some of it, you know, stories have been embellished. But there's just so much history and uh, wonder there, and it is just so far removed from from what we know and the way that that we were living at the time. I mean, when all of this was going on, when these tombs and temples and pyramids were being built, we were fighting the Vikings, you know, and the, the difference in cultures are just huge. They seem to be so advanced here at the time. Um, and certainly, you know, how they managed to achieve all these engineering uh, masterpieces is still not known, it's still not explained. Um, so after that, we're just you're just blown away as well. There's so much to take in and, and so much to look at and so much to learn. And you do start to work out the hieroglyphs. You start to look at figures that are familiar because we've been shown how to read bits and pieces of them. And you can start to pick out bits and pieces and you can start to see which katushas are for the king. And it, it's just an incredible experience. It's yeah, awesome, absolutely awesome. So we finished our trip and we went back to the hotel for lunch and then we decided that we didn't want to waste any of our time here. So we could have had an afternoon on the boat, but we decided that we were going to grab a taxi back into Luxor and we were going to have a wander around, uh, maybe get a mint tea somewhere and see what the afternoon brought. Well, as it was, um, we, couldn't, we couldn't make ourselves understood. So first the taxi driver took us to one of these government shopping, sanctioned shopping centres, which you find everywhere, which, you know, sells artisan goods. Um, and we didn't want to do that because we'd already done plenty of those. Um, so we said we wanted to go to the Sukh. So he, uh, I don't know if he didn't understand us or he chose not to take us to the Sukh. It's very hard to tell. But anyway, he took us back to the waterfront. So the only thing that was there was uh, the Luxor Museum which we had wanted to see so that didn't open till five so we went and found ourselves a little um, like restaurant kind of place on the water had a little drink waited out um, our time and then we went to the Luxor Museum which is fantastic it's just absolutely fantastic it's, it's not overly huge but it's got lots of the stuff that came out of the temples at Karnak uh, some amazing sculptures very alien looking sculptures uh, lots of the offerings that came out of the tombs, some of the sarcophagus that came out of the tombs, um, some of the artwork, some of the jewellery, 
and yeah it's all it leads you on a journey the way it's all set out and designed is incredible and you feel you feel like you get an idea of all you know how the different kings moved in and now and the way that they ruled the countries and what they were famous for honestly i can't recommend it enough it's absolutely excellent um and we thoroughly enjoyed our afternoon our taxi driver had waited for us um so he took us back um in time for an evening on the boat so after dinner um unfortunately our view of the nile had been blocked by a docked boat because what they actually do is they stack four of them or up to four of them side by side so you walk through three boats to get to yours if yours is the fourth one um so not an issue so we went up to the sun deck had a couple of drinks up there to finish off our day and it's not until you kind of stop at the end of the day and you allow all the stuff to filter through that you realize just how much you've seen because you're on the go and it's it's very hot and you're having to remember to hydrate and you're there's so much information being given out at you that your brain just goes ah and then when you calm down it's kind of like wow this is amazing i've learned this today and i've seen this today and i've, I've seen stuff that's you know five thousand years old and it's just it's just a mind-blowing experience i can't wait for tomorrow because we get to see the valley of the kings so i hope you'll join me for that Hi, so this was our last day, uh, a full day in Egypt, and we went to, we just, it was just so amazing, we went to the Valley of the Kings. But first, we started um, at the Colossi of Nemon, which are these two huge, absolutely huge figures. Um, again, you know, how do they make them? How do they get them there? All of the same questions I keep having. Um, and they're just kind of like, that's all that's left really on this site because. Um, Apparently, it was built. This temple was built in 1400 BC for a very strong and powerful and rich king called uh, Amenhotep. So he built a temple that was four acres um, big. And because he was so wealthy and, and uh, wanted everyone to know how powerful he was, he paved the floor in silver and he paved the walls in gold. He covered the walls in gold. It must have been, it must have been amazing. Um, but unfortunately an earthquake destroyed the temple and all that really remains are these two huge fantastic um, statues. So it's said that many years later an African king called uh, Neman was killed in battle here in Egypt and his mother was so distraught that she asked God for a sound for her son. Um, a small earthquake, not the same one as destroyed the temple, occurred and cracked the statue causing a noise so people believe that god had answered her prayers and so the temple or the the two figures then became known as the colossi of nemnon um, and that was pretty incredible to see and it's so it's so weird because you'd literally just pull into this thing at the side of the road get out go down some steps there's the two big statues um and that's it just random statues dotted all over the place i have so much history here it's just incredible and they say that so much of their history has been taken by other countries and is in other countries. So you just can't imagine this whole place must just have been full of sculptures and riches. And yeah, it's mind blowing. Anyway, so from there, we went on our way to the Valley of the Kings. And in the Valley of the Kings, there are 65 royal tombs and 57 tombs for high priests. There are four queens in the Valley of the Kings, uh, but in all of the Valley of the Kings, there are over 4,000 tombs in all. So apparently a tomb is started on the first day on the job, <laughs> when, when you become king or queen or 
um, you start your tomb. And then when you die, the, the priest has 70 days to mummify you. Um, and so this is why most tombs are unfinished, because if you only got a couple of years in the job, obviously you didn't get a chance to finish off um, much of your tomb. Um, and especially as when you think it takes two to five years to cut the tomb, and then it takes five to ten years to decorate it. And they're made of limestone, which is not strong enough um, for what they want, so they then cover it in plaster. So just, just the numbers, how many people are working on these tombs and how long they take, and again, how the hell did they do it? They're carving into these huge cliffs, mountains of stone. It's just, uh, just amazing. Anyway, it's thought that Christian monks came to live in the valley during the Roman and Greek occupation because they just wanted to get away from the population and have some time for reflection. So it's been used by different um, denominations over the time. And then, of course, we have Howard Carter. So his house is on the site, but that's now a museum. Um, but he found the King Tutankhamun tomb in 1822 after he'd been searching for it for six years. And they found in this tomb, it was intact, it had never been robbed, it had never been opened. This was, you know... As it was, they found 5,600 gold items, um, and most of which are you know, all over the place, but a lot of them are in the Egyptian Museum um, in Cairo, which we were lucky enough to see at the beginning of our trip. So when you, get, when you get your ticket to go to the Valley of the Kings, you get the opportunity to go to three tombs. You can choose which ones you see, but you, it allows you entrance into three tombs. And, but you have to pay extra if you want to go to the, the tomb of Tutankhamun. So we've done that. And that was the tomb that we started with. And honestly, it's just mad. So you walk down this like long slope to get to the, the chamber that's opened up. And there on the left is, is Tutankhamun. His mummified body is in the tomb still. So that's weird. I don't really know how I feel about looking at a dead body. It seems a bit disrespectful. Well, it seems very disrespectful. But anyway, so he's there. But the artwork on the tomb is just incredible. And on the other side from where Tutankhamun is, there's um, a picture depicting 12 baboons. So anytime you see 12 of anything uh, depicted here in the pictures or the artwork, it represents 12 divisions of the afterlife. And for each part, each division of the afterlife, there's also a book. So Book of the Dead, book of the, you know, all those kind of things. And it tells you how to prepare yourself, prepare your mindset, prepare your life so that you move swiftly through to the afterlife. Um, and it's all full colour. All the colour has remained after all this time and it's it's just mind-blowing. And you're just standing there in a tomb, which I never thought I'd be doing, especially at the tomb of Tutankhamun, and looking at all this history, all, all the work that's gone in to decorate this tomb. And it is stunningly beautiful and like it was done yesterday. It's just just incredible so I mean literally it's just a little room and it's incredibly hot in there it's, it's unbearable hot so people don't you don't hang around long you literally go down everyone kind of shuffles around so that everyone can see everything and then you come out up another huge ramp out into the daylight uh, absolutely incredible and they're not actually sure how Tutankhamun died um that they think there's several reasons but the fact is that he's just one of the most famous uh, that we've all heard of so to be in his tomb was just mind-blowing so lots of kings here are called Ramesses in fact there are 11 of them um, and Ramesses I was 60 odd when he became king and he, so he only got to rule for a couple of years 
Um, then there was Ramesses II, and he's known as the Great, and he ruled. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 60-odd years, and he had lots and lots of wives and children. And then there was Ramesses III, and he was 30 years um, their king, and he was the last strong king. After that, it all just got a bit weak, and it, it didn't go well for the, the Ramesses IV to the 11th. Um, and actually, Ramesses, we, we put it all together, but it's three separate words. It's Ram, Mess, and Sue. But um, for ease, I guess, it, it's used for English as Ramesses. Um, and then, so you've got all these temples, uh, all these tombs in this temple area. And Ramesses III buried some of his sons in the Valley of the Kings and some of his sons in Valley of the Queens. So it's all a little bit of a mishmash. Um, as I said, unfortunately, most of the tombs were robbed, uh, but the robbers, or they took all the gold and then they just threw the mummies outside the tombs. I really know why they do that, because that makes it obvious you've robbed the tomb. And obviously everyone, because they know the process, everyone knew the riches of the tombs. So I guess that then highlights to people that there's more tombs to be robbed. But anyway, so um, after we'd gone through all the other Ramesses, we got down to Ramesses XI, the king after him, uh, he hid all the mummies, he, he took them all up, he hid them in two hiding places near, and one of them is near Queen um, Hatshepsut's temple, her temple, her terrace temple, um, and he managed to hide them successfully for a, for a long time. So you go into these tombs and every single tomb will have a picture of the tomb owner being welcomed by the sun god Ra. They also all have pictures of boats, as that was how they believed that the dead would be moved between the 12 divisions of the afterlife. Um, and So we could go into three of the tombs. So obviously we'd done Tutankhamun on a separate ticket. And then we went to Ramesses IV's tomb, which is just incredible. You've got this huge, I mean it's huge, huge long corridor, and all the way down are beautiful pictures, hieroglyphics telling his story, um, just on the ceilings are still painted, it's all still beautiful bright colours and this is huge this temple, I mean you walk and you walk and you walk until you finally get down into the temple room which again it's just all the paintings on the wall are in amazing condition and there's little like alcoves coming off them and they're painted and you can it, you, it's just so much to see it's just incredible and so beautiful and just the care and skill and and the longevity I mean how is how is it still preserved it's all using you know iron oxide and and natural dyes and everything it's just just fantastic what an amazing part of history so from there we went to uh, Ramesses the first and again um, his was a bit easier to get into it wasn't it's not such a big tomb but again, just incredible artwork depicting his life and, and then what his journey will be like to the afterworld. And yeah, just just incredible. Big uh, big plinth in there for his tomb where his sarcophagus would have rested on. Um, yeah, absolutely mind-blown. I know I keep saying it's absolutely mind-blown, but it really is. You, and you, you just have to think to yourself, you're standing in front of something that's 5,000 years old, beautifully preserved. You've read about it, you've seen it in films. You know, everyone has an idea of what it's going to look like, but you you can't get the the scale or the majesty of it until you're actually looking at it yourself. And then it's kind of like you come out and you think, did I did I just see that? Have I just been lucky enough to experience that? Honestly, amazing, amazing. Um, so yeah, fantastic. But God, it was hot. It was 
ridiculously hot walking around there and and when you go into the um into the tombs themselves there is no air and you've got all these people giving off all this heat as well so if you are going to go to the valley of the kings i strongly suggest you take a hand fan and at least that makes it bearable i have never sweated so much in my life honestly just almost from the minute you start the journey down into the tomb the sweat just starts pouring and it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and then you come out and it seems cool <laughs> and the irony of that is it's 40 degrees outside you know by this time it's all it was almost midday and yeah you go out the tomb and you think oh thank god <laughs> thank god it's cooler out here but what a mind-blowing experience just incredible and also you just the scale of the site it's it's massive it's so big that when you get go through security you then get on a little bus to take you to some of the tombs because it's, it's too far to walk it's just just huge anyway from there we were taken to an alabaster factory and we were explained where alabaster comes from and how they make the vases and uh, little pyramids and stuff that you see and how the difference between the basalt and the granite um, and the stuff that you get off the market the stuff you get off the market is quite often limestone or concrete painted black um, and we I even got to have a go at using some of the tools, so that was really interesting and you know great skillmanship. And then from there we went to the terraced temple of Queen Hatshepsut. We were told the way to remember how to say her name is hot chicken soup. So it's hot soup. <laughs> anyway, so she ruled Egypt for twenty years. Uh, she married her brother because kings and queens were allowed to do that because they had to keep the bloodline. Uh, it had to be royal blood. Um, but after a while he took another and they had a daughter but after a while he took another wife and then had a son so in essence her nephew now she didn't get on with her nephew and he was only nine when um, the king died um, so he should have become king but what she did instead because she wanted to rule was she hid him in the royal palace and he wasn't allowed outside at all consequently he hated her absolutely hated her uh, and when she died, he obliterated her face on all the pictures in the temple, her double, so that her soul wouldn't be able to recognise her body. Um, and her temple is huge. She built this for herself, and, and there was one to the right of her temple, uh, if you're standing in her temple, that had a terrace, and she thought this was such a cool idea that she made it herself. So you go up these steps, it's got this massive terrace, and then you go up again into her um, into her temple. But there's not much to see in the temple. Like you go through, you, as you get to the top of the stairs, there's these massive um, figures again, which are incredibly impressive. And then you go through into like a courtyard, and, and there's hieroglyphics on the wall, but they're not been all the paint's gone, and there's bits been chipped out of them. And then you go through into a like a little sanctuary temple area, um, and that's got some paint on it that's still intact but there's there's really not much there it's just the majesty of the building itself and the view the view that you get because you're so high up in the valley of the kings and the view that you get over the land in front of you is absolutely stunning absolutely amazing um so yeah i have to say it was just a brilliant morning there just aren't enough superlatives to keep to stress at how incredible the stuff that you see here is um and yeah, like I said, it was it was ridiculously hot today. I've got no idea what the temperature was in the tombs. Um, and if you are if you are coming uh, to Egypt, don't don't miss coming to the Valley of the Kings. It is spectacular. So from there, we were back on the coach. We went back for lunch, and after finding out about our departure times for the next day, 
we decided to just have a lazy afternoon. Um, so we went in the plunge pool, we sat by our panoramic window and we just watched the world go by with a glass of wine, which was very lovely. And then we sat on the sun deck and, and just enjoyed the views on our last afternoon and evening of our Nile cruise. And I have to say, it's been such an incredible trip. Like I said, I've had to pinch myself so many times because it just seems unbelievable that I'm standing inside or in front of some of the most iconic artifacts in the world. And I am so very grateful to have these opportunities to travel and learn. Honestly, I love traveling. I love learning all this stuff. And yeah, so grateful that I can do it. So what I would say to you is if you like what you've heard me describe, then I would say Egypt is a fantastic place to visit. But there is an awful lot of poverty and it's very evident. And they will try and rip you off. Haggling is compulsory and tipping is obligatory, not discretionary here. But if you're prepared for all of that, then it is the most exciting and wondrous amazing country and yeah I've loved every single minute of it so yeah come to Egypt but thank you very much for listening I really hope you found it interesting and I hope you'll join me for my next travel adventure take care bye